This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. All right, welcome back. This is Mike Smith in for Simi today. This whole issue of teen vaping, that one hits close to home for me. I got two teenage boys in high school, and I sit them down. I say, don't let me catch you guys doing this vaping. And they tell me, Dad, don't worry, we're not doing it. I believe them. They're good kids. But I know their friends, man, are vaping. I see their friends vaping. When I walk by the high school, I see gangs of kids out there all sort of enveloped in a vapor cloud. Lots of kids are doing this vaping. I even heard from some teachers that kids are vaping in class, not just outside the school, not just in the washroom, which, by the way, some schools lock the bathrooms during the day because there's so much vaping going on in the bathrooms. I'm talking right in class. Kids vaping right in front of the teacher. This is how out of control it's got. Look what's happening in Washington State where the governor down there, Jay Inslee, has just used emergency powers under a uh, uh, an executive order to order a ban on flavored vape products. He says this is appealing to kids. If you're selling Tutti Frutti and ice cream cone flavored vapes, it, you're just hooking kids on nicotine. Should we do the same thing here in British Columbia? That's your hot question of the day, which is Washington's governor has just banned flavored vapes. Should BC do the same? Would you say yes? Let's ban these flavored vape products. It's marketing to kids. Or would you say, no, adults like the flavors too. This is the policy conundrum for the government here. If you have adults getting off tobacco and switching to vapes, maybe that's a good thing. And they like the flavors too. Here's where you vote on this today. At CKNW on Twitter is where you'll find the hot question today. At CKNW on Twitter. Also, give me a call on the buzz line on this one today. 604 604- 331 buzz is the number to call 604 331 2899 tell me what you think should bc ban flavored vape products in british columbia i am confident this executive order will save lives i am confident it will save children from a lifetime of nicotine addiction i am confident it will reduce this epidemic of youthful vaping that today is driving parents and grandparents crazy across the state of Washington. It's time for the state of Washington to protect these kids, and that's what we're doing. All right, welcome back to the show. This is Mike Smith filling in for Simi Sarah today. That was the voice of Jay Inslee, the governor of Washington State, who on Friday issued an emergency executive order to ban flavored vape products in the state. This comes after a sharp rise in teen vaping and some reported health consequences south of the border and even some fatalities in the United States as well. Should the B.C. government step in here to crack down on teen vaping and maybe ban flavored vape products here too? Let's check in with Health Minister Adrian Dix now. Very pleased you could take the time. Minister, thank you. Hey, anytime, Mike. Great to talk to you. What you, What do you think about what Washington State's doing there? 
Well, I think it's uh, the flavored question, especially flavoring uh, targeting to children, is clearly something uh, we need to take action on as well. Mm-hmm. I wanted to add to that, though. It's only one part of the problem. I think one of the problems when you make pronouncements, and boy, Governor Inslee sounded good when he made that pronouncement, right? Yeah. Is that it's only one part of the problem, right? Another part of the problem is the concentration of nicotine, which I think is actually a more serious part of the problem than flavoring, although both are serious. Uh, I think uh, we also need to take steps because all of us remember this and when we grew up that a lot of people smoke cigarettes and that number was reduced not just by laws and action and action by governments, by the fact it became really socially unacceptable for young people to smoke and the numbers were reduced. So we need government action and regulation and we need uh, action uh, uh, often as often as possible led by young people to reduce uh, the use of, uh, of vape products. Vaping uh, can be useful for, for example, for people who have been smoking and are adults. Right. Um, but to, to reduce either their dependence on nicotine or get off it entirely, it can be a useful product for that reason. And that's why it was legalized by the government of Canada, the government of British Columbia, some years ago. But uh, it, it shouldn't be allowed amongst young people. And if you aren't a smoker, you shouldn't vape. It's not right. good for right. you. And it leads potentially in the danger. It leads potentially to um, to a lifetime ad- uh, addiction to nicotine. Okay, let's talk about the flavors, though, right? I mean, a lot of people say that these flavors are tutti-frutti or ice cream flavors or candy cane and all kinds of any flavor in the world, really, you can get from these vape products, that that is luring kids and hooking kids on, onto nicotine. What are your thoughts on that? And, and could the B.C. government step in and ban flavored vape products here in B.C. like they've done in Washington State? Or is that federal jurisdiction? Well, here? it's principally federal jurisdiction. The people who have said that in the past included the health minister here, the former health minister, Terry Lake, who, who brought in uh, our regulatory regime here. But, uh, you know, the federal government has drafted uh, regulations but not proclaimed them. That would have, uh, which would target flavoring. And what we want to encourage them to do is to act. If they don't act, it may be possible for us within provincial jurisdiction, not as directly, to act as well. And I'm absolutely open to doing that. But the federal government is ready. I'm disappointed they didn't act before the election because that leads to a delay, as you know, Mike, not just with the election, but with the period after the election. But I think uh, it's my expectation, no matter who wins the election, that Health Canada needs to act and act quickly. And in the meantime, We're preparing our own actions to uh, address this question, including actions to uh, allow young people to lead and to both educate, be educated, as all of us, I think, need to be educated, because I think a lot of us don't know very much about uh, vaping. So for parents and for children to learn about the danger, potential dangers of vaping and as well to lead the efforts to uh, reduce it amongst young people. I've heard from some adults who vape and, and credit vaping for getting them to quit cigarettes that banning flavors would actually be a bad thing because it's not just kids who enjoy the flavors from vaping, but it's actually adults. And maybe for a lot of adults, it's encouraged them to quit smoking if they can enjoy a flavored vape product. So if you ban flavors, would you be hurting adults trying to get off of cigarettes? Well, well you got you got to be careful here because flavor, everything has flavor, right? Everything has flavor in a sense. But what we want to target, surely, and I think this is true in all political parties, I believe, and certainly myself, what we want to do is uh, target efforts that seem to target youth, you know. And there's a responsibility here for the companies as well, because if there are flavors that are clearly directed to young people, I mean, that that reflects, I think, badly on the whole industry. It says 
that the industry is targeting those young people, right? And so, yes, uh, it is legal in adult-only vape stores to sell vaping products to adults. But uh, the idea that uh, flavors that clearly seem targeted to youth, and we don't need to be, you know, you don't, we don't need to be too technical here. We know it when we see it. I think um, uh, shouldn't shouldn't be either be allowed, and frankly, shouldn't be promoted by the industry themselves. The industry themselves has always said they're not targeting young people. That this isn't about targeting young people. That they're not going to do it. That they're against it. Well, if they're against it, then there shouldn't be flavors that are clearly targeting okay. young people. Okay, speaking to BC Health Minister Adrian Dix on the issue of nicotine, you've you've mentioned that you think that the amount of nicotine that's widely available in vape juice and vape products right now is too high. There's too much nicotine in these products, right? So can what can the province do about that? Well, I think uh, I think there are steps we can take, and there are steps the federal government can take to do this. One of the reasons why I believe in the United Kingdom, and there was a very significant study, which I which is actually not a complicated study. I refer, uh, I. Uh, uh, I recommend that your listeners uh, take a look. It's uh, seven or eight pages long. And one of the things that study shows is a higher take-up of uh, vaping products amongst youth, uh, uh, should I say a lower one in Britain, a higher in Canada and in the United States. And there is, as I understand it, a lower concentration of nicotine. I mean, nicotine is a highly addictive product. We all know this. We've known this for a very, very long time. And so a higher concentration of nicotine is, in fact, uh, a you know, a, a greater danger to young people and makes it more likely uh, uh, for, for young people to, to face addiction issues. So that's something that I think clearly we need to look at and get at. So nicotine, absolutely. The point of sale in British Columbia is important because we have, um, under the regime that has been set up in BC, about 90,000 outlets who can sell vaping products. Wow. That many outlets makes it very difficult to regulate. You know, we have inspectors, right? Tobacco inspectors, etc. But it's a lot easier to uh, to regulate the six thousand businesses that can sell tobacco and have licenses, and you can take away their licenses, than the largely unregulated ninety thousand who can sell vape products. So we need to take some steps on that side as well. And as I've said repeatedly, I think it's really important to to note we we all have to to um, to learn more about the impact of vaping, because I think the the very um, advertising around the vape products suggests something that's, if not good for you, at least not bad for you, right? And uh, right. N- nobody believes that about cigarettes. Nobody believes that about cigarettes. And so we have to be clear that if you're not a smoker, this is not something that uh, you should be taking up or your children under any circumstances okay. should be take- taking up. Liberal MLA Todd Stone put a private member's bill in the legislature back last spring that would ban flavored vape products. He, he also wanted new restrictions on where these vape products can be sold. You mentioned that there are 90,000 potential uh, vape retailers in the province, which people may be surprised at that number. I know I was. His bill would say you're only allowed to sell vape products in uh, a specialized vape store or a tobacco store, like a cigar shop, or a pharmacy. So in other words, you wouldn't be able to buy them in a corner store or a gas station. Your thoughts on that? Well, uh, I think that's what I've been saying. As you know, um, the previous Liberal government set up the regulatory regime. So the 90000 is there because they felt that you shouldn't license in the case of vape products as you do in tobacco products. And it's absolutely fine that people change their mind. That's not a criticism, but that's the circumstance. Well, you didn't, you didn't object that, to that, that at the time. A, that's the circumstance right? we're in today. And, I, and yeah. I, I think that what's happening now is we're learning more. And so I haven't, you know, I'm not 
criticizing anybody. I'm just saying that that's the reality we face. The challenge with the legislation performed by Mr. Stone is that uh, he wrote it to raise awareness, right? That's why you, private members' bills are written, but technically there are significant problems with the legislation, so we're not going to be able to use that. But uh, I think that uh, I'm delighted, and I'm prepared to work with anyone who's interested. Todd knows this because I've talked to him about it. Uh, work with anyone who's interested to uh, to help address this problem, because I, I really don't think that this is sort of a um, should be a, a finger-pointing episode. It's a problem, and it's a problem for young people, and we should all get together and help solve it. Thanks for coming on. Hey, any time, eh? I appreciate it a lot. That is Adrian Dix, BC's Minister of Health, talking about the rise of teen vaping. What is the BC government going to do about it? I'm talking about the rise in teen vaping and what should be done about it. That's our hot question of the day today, by the way. Should there be a ban on flavored vapes? Oh, look at this so far on our hot question. 84% want a ban on flavored vapes in BC. 84%. They say that's just marketing to kids. Only 16% say leave it the way it is. Let's check in with Todd Stone now, Liberal MLA. He's the critic on this file. Very pleased to welcome him. Hi. Good morning, Mike. Thanks a lot for coming on. I know you heard my interview there with uh, Health Minister Adrian Dix. What do you think? Well, uh, you know, it sounds like uh, it sounds like Adrian Dix and, and the NDP government uh, are now awake to the issue. Um, I, I guess my, my question at this point is, there sound, is you know, he mentioned a lot of potential actions there, um, you know, when? When are we actually yeah. going to see the actions uh, begin to be put in place? I, I introduced my private member's bill last April. Uh, by the time we're back in session in, uh, next week, it will be six months, six months of, uh, of no action. And uh, as, as you and I have spoken about before, it, it, a lot of the action that could be taken doesn't necessarily require regulatory changes or legislative changes. Uh, you know, I've been calling for those education uh, awareness, prevention, and support programs in all of our middle and high schools. Uh, that 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 work could have been readied over the summer and, and implemented, and and it's not too late. Uh, so I would say, uh, good to, to to hear that uh, they're heading in in the direction of taking action. But uh, when are we actually going to see uh, some action on this on the on this uh, youth vaping front? Let's talk about banning flavored vapes. What did you think about the move in Washington state on Friday by the governor down there to issue an executive emergency order to ban flavored vapes there in Washington state? Well, uh, let's be clear. Uh, uh, Michigan has banned, uh, banned flavored uh, uh, vapor products. Uh, yeah. So has Rhode Island, uh, Massachusetts, the state of New York, and uh, Washington State on Friday became the latest uh, to st- uh, stand up and say, we're not going to wait uh, any further. We're going to take action. And I thought Inslee spoke quite passionately about it. Uh, you know, he said at one point in his conference, uh, Look, I don't know for certain if the actual chemical makeup of the juice is uh, is good or bad for one's health, but what I can tell you is it's one of the leading factors that's driving kids to actually engage in this in this unhealthy practice. And so, by virtue of that, we've got to do away with these uh, with the flavored vape juice. Okay, can that be done at a provincial level, or does it fall to the feds to do it? Uh, it, it, it certainly can be done at the provincial level. The province has acted uh, independently uh, before. Uh, now, the federal government uh, has uh, uh, readied some regulations. Uh, uh, it's unfortunate that they weren't passed before the, the start of the federal election. Um, but, uh, you know, it's always preferable when there's a pan-Canadian national approach to these issues. Uh, but, I, you know, as I've said previously, we're in the middle of a federal election. It's going to be at least another four, five, six months, I would suggest, before 
uh, a federal government uh, uh, figures out what they want to do on this and takes action. And that's just uh, that's foregoing an entire school year. Uh, again, uh, and when we had a 74% increase in youth vaping uh, kids in grades 10 to 12 year over year, uh, I would suggest that uh, a, a heightened level of urgency is required here, which is why my private member's bill uh, from last April uh, would ban uh, the flavored uh, vape products. Um, so I, I think the province should get on with it and, and uh, unilaterally take that action. If Ottawa right. comes in later uh, and, and, and does something uh, from a national perspective, then uh, all, all the better. Okay, speaking of Liberal MLA Todd Stone, let's talk about the point of sale for vape products in, in British Columbia. 90,000 uh, retail outlets in, in BC. I think some people might be surprised at that number. When you talk to Adrian Dix about that, he says basically he thinks there's too many points of sale for these products in BC and something should be done about it. He points the finger at you guys saying that when you guys are in power, you guys brought in that, that retail framework that allows so many of these vape products to be available like, like gas stations and corner stores. What are your thoughts on that? Well, uh, again, uh, those regulations were brought in in 2016. That was three years ago. The the, the vaping uh, uh, issue, uh, particularly amongst youth, um, has uh, has just exploded over the last 18 months or so. It's not anyone's fault. Like, I, I certainly haven't pointed the finger at the NDP government and said it's their fault that uh, you know teens at my daughter's school are vaping in record numbers. Um, but Adrian Dix is the health minister. Uh, the NDP are the government. Uh, they're the ones that can take action uh, to combat uh, surging youth vaping rates. And, and, uh, and that's, uh, that's, that was the intent of my bill in April, was to put something out there uh, as a starting point. Uh, unfortunately, they have uh, opted not to, to pursue that. And we're sitting here now, uh, it's all, you know, last day of September, and uh, no action has been taken in British Columbia when jurisdictions all around us um, are uh, recognizing the problem for what it is and are stepping up and, uh, and doing what they can. I've heard from some people who use vape products, and I'm talking adults here now, who say that, look, these products help me to quit smoking cigarettes. And as a smoking cessation strategy, they arguably have made, saved my life in, in some regards, you could argue. And I've heard from some adults saying, like, look, I actually like the flavors myself. It's not just the kids who like these flavored vapes. It's adults who are attracted to the flavors as well. And maybe that's a good thing if they quit, quit smoking cigarettes. What are your thoughts there? Well, uh, the twofold. Uh, first off, w again, we don't know uh, what, uh, what is in the, the, this vape juice. Uh, we do not know what the, uh, the long-term health impacts are uh, of, uh, of the juice or, or vaping generally. Uh, we do know that nicotine uh, is contained in, in an increasing uh, number of these vape products, and, and nicotine is one of the most addictive substances on the face of the earth. Uh, um, I am sure that there are some adults out there uh, where having uh, some flavored options has been uh, 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 an assist to helping them get off of uh, traditional cigarettes. But right. at the end of the day, I'm going to put uh, our, our kids first. I'm going to put the youth of this province first. Uh, the tobacco companies, which own these big vape companies, uh, have, have insidiously targeted our kids. Uh, by using uh, uh, flavored vape okay. juice, sleek products, and, and, and savvy marketing on, on social media. And, okay. uh, and so that's where we have to err, uh, I think, in terms of our actions going forward. Thanks for coming on. Thanks, Mike. I appreciate it. Liberal MLA Todd Stone on teen vaping. Heard both sides of it there. Let's talk about that brazen daylight shooting in Surrey on Saturday. Now, it happened around 6 p.m. at a mobile gas station at 188th Avenue and Fraser Highway. RCMP say it appears to be a targeted hit. A man in his late 20s sitting in the back of a black Mercedes at the gas pump. 
a gun down about 6 p.m. For some people, this is bringing back some very bad memories. Remember Darlene Bennett? Her husband was gunned down in his own driveway and what police later said was a mistaken identity case. She says this is just happening too much. Have a listen. You know, I, 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 these politicians need to wake up. They do. Um, our, our mayor, um, the provincial politicians, you know, people are losing their lives. It's not okay. As Darlene Bennett, now Surrey Mayor Doug McCallum in the aftermath of that shooting says, this is why they need a new police department in the city of Surrey. He says, this is what I'm talking about. We need a local police department to replace the RCMP. Let's check in with an opposition councillor down there at, Van- at Surrey City Hall now, Linda Annis, Surrey City Councillor. Councillor, thank you very much for coming on. My pleasure to be here today, Mike. Councillor, when you hear the mayor say uh, in the aftermath of this shooting that this is why we need a local police force, you think that's a legitimate point for him to make? That Could a local police force do a better job of stopping these uh, brazen shootings than the RCMP in your mind? Absolutely not. The uh, gang situation is rampant throughout the Lower Mainland, both in cities and municipalities that are served by municipal police forces. Um, Excuse me, what we need in Surrey is more police officers and more programming for our youth. Okay, the the mayor says that if we get a local police force, things would improve. He's complaining about the bureaucratic red tape, in his words, that are slowing up the introduction of a local police force. What are your thoughts on that? The report uh, that the mayor put forward to Victoria on behalf of the city of Surrey actually recommended less police officers than we currently have. Currently, the report is flawed with a lot of problems. It's going to take them a while to go through this and figure out what the optimum policing model should look like for Surrey. What do you think should be done? Do you think the city should should stick with the RCMP? It's probably the train's already left the station here, it appears, on that now. But is that would that be your preference, to keep the RCMP and, and maybe better fund it? Well, absolutely. Right now, the police are being underfunded at the last um, uh, budget approval. The RCMP asked for just 12 more members, and the mayor and his team uh, would not support that. Clearly, they're under-resourced, um, and um, we need to get more police officers. Surrey is uh, uh, 85% of the size of Vancouver. Vancouver has over 1,400 members. We have 845. Clearly, the math just doesn't make sense. What concerns do you have about violence that we're seeing, not just in Surrey, but there's other cities as well, but when you see a brazen kind of daylight shooting like this at a gas station, uh, police are saying this is a targeted hit this is essentially looks like a gang a gangland hit does that make it any better in your mind i mean if people say these are gangsters killing each other these are soldiers killing each other in a gang war and if innocent people aren't getting killed well these are just these are just gangsters taking each other out or do you have concerns about maybe someone innocent gets caught in a crossfire I'm hugely concerned about innocent people getting caught in the crossfire and listening to Darlene Bennett's uh, uh, interview at the intro to this interview. My heart goes out to her and out to other families who've lost loved ones uh, unnecessarily because of the increased gang violence throughout the Lower Mainland. Speaking to Surrey City Councillor Linda Annis, Councillor, you've also been speaking out about another way that I I think Surrey residents are getting shortchanged, not just on 
policing services, but also on transit services. You have pointed out that there's a recent TransLink report that has come out that show that Surrey drivers are putting in a lot more kilometers on the road than other people around the region, but we're also underserved by transit options. Your thoughts? Absolutely. Surrey residents are, on average, putting in 11.5 million kilometers daily to get wow. to their place of work, to get to schools, to get to any activities that they're doing. And clearly that's not acceptable. Right now with the new um, SkyTrain uh, plan for Surrey, we have four stations coming in. That's it. We're way underserved. We've been left in the dark for far too long. It's time that we get a proper transit system for Surrey, not only along the uh, Fraser Corridor, but also north-south. We need proper transportation into Newton and into South Surrey, both very fast-growing um, communities within Surrey. Okay, but you supported that SkyTrain plan, though, right? I mean, the city scrapped the LRT, the light rail transit project, decided to go with the mayor's idea of SkyTrain for Surrey, too. I mean, you voted in favor of that SkyTrain plan, right? But the mayor said that he could get the SkyTrain all the way to Langley. Right now, we've got four stations, seven kilometers of um, rail going through. That's not what I supported. I supported SkyTrain going through to Langley at the cost that the mayor said that he could deliver it for, and clearly he cannot. What should be done now, then? We need to be advocating to the federal government to get this built. We need to go to Langley, but even more so, we need to be going north-south. Newton, South Surrey is very underserved by transit right now. We need a proper transit uh, plan for all of Surrey. We've been left behind for far, far too long. Okay, speaking of Surrey City Councillor uh, Linda Annis, let me get your take on another hot topic in Surrey, and that's the introduction of ride-hailing services, which have been approved by the provincial government now. And you see these big companies like Uber and Lyft saying, okay, we're ready to roll here. We're applying for an operating license. The mayor, Doug McCallum, has said that the city of Surrey would refuse to give a business license to these ride-hailing companies. What are your thoughts on that? Well, clearly we need Uber and we need other ride-hailing services for Surrey. I've just spoken earlier about the need for better transportation. We don't have enough taxis here. We need to make it easy for people to move around Surrey and around the Lower Mainland. And by denying uh, ride-hailing services to Surrey fundamentally is a big mistake. We need to let the market dictate what happens. And quite frankly, it's not within the Surrey's mandate to issue business licenses or not for ride hailing. The province yeah. has said that we're getting this. We need to get it now. Can the city of Surrey even do that, what the mayor said? Like, we'll refuse to give you a business license? I mean, the taxi companies just loved that when he made that announcement in front of a bunch of taxi drivers. But I wonder, can the, does the Sur city of Surrey even have the authority to do that? We need to be looking at the best interests of the residents of Surrey, not special interest groups. And clearly, I'm hearing from everyone, or almost everyone in Surrey, we need ride hailing and we need it now. And it is my understanding, it is not within the Surrey's or any city's mandate to deny ride hailing services. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it... <clears throat> a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. 
Councillor, thanks for coming on today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Mike. Yeah, you bet. That's Surrey City Councillor Linda Annis there weighing in on a lot of hot topics. Let's talk about the federal election now and the rollout of the detailed party platforms. Yesterday, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau unveiled the Liberal Party platform, $57 billion over four years. I'm telling you, the money taps are wide open here. Lots of spending here in this Liberal Party platform. You got across the board tax cuts. A lot of people like to hear about that. Increased money for university and college student grants. Uh, Trudeau says he wants to lower your cell phone bill by 25%. Not sure how he's going to pull that off. $2,000 grant so families can go camping. What a different tune this guy is singing from a a few years ago. Take a look at the deficit now, where the deficit in this country is going to go under this plan. $27.4 billion deficit next year. Wow, $27 billion. It was only $14 billion just last year. So $27 billion. Yeah, billions and billions of dollars. Just massive deficits here over many, many years to pay for this stuff. Remember what he said in the last election. If you go back to 2015, here's what Trudeau said about balancing the budget. I am looking straight at Canadians and being honest the way I always have. We said we are committed to balanced budgets, and we are. We will balance that budget in 2019. Not quite. Not quite. We're not even close. You're going to go to a $27 billion deficit. This is the year he said he would balance the budget. Going in the wrong direction here. So here's a guy who said he would balance the budget in 2019. Instead, he's giving out grants so families can go camping. Let's check in with Chris Sims now, BC Director, Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Get her take on it. Hi, Chris. Hi, Mike. What do you think of this platform? It's staggering. Um, the amount of overspending that they're now promising, like out loud, openly with their faces, is just shocking. Um, and I'm glad you played that clip because I know a lot of people uh, really do take fiscal management seriously. Uh, we know that previous liberal leaders and previous liberal prime ministers have done so. Uh, prime Minister Paul Martin uh, was famous right. for going after the deficit when he was finance minister. The CTF actually gave him an award for doing so. Um, and to see this now, to have somebody campaigning like this, promising to just run up the credit card bills for everybody, is really, really concerning. Guys, we, we know that we like stuff. We know that <laughs> saying making nice announcements in your canoe is, is fun. But people need to pay for that. And our, our kids are going to pay for it, or we're going to pay for it when we're older. Like, they, they can't keep doing this. And to give you an idea of how much money this is, yeah. so based on the four-year fiscal plan like you just heard with the clip, now that we're at 2019 and they haven't balanced their budget, they've blown through the fiscal plan they campaigned on last time by $50 billion. Wow. To give you an idea of what that is, that, that's 26 St. Paul's hospitals. Whoa. That's 53,000 teachers being paid for 20 years. Wow. That's how much they've blown it by. Yeah, It's amazing to go back to that clip from four years ago and just remind people about what Trudeau said. I'm going to play it again here because 
if you just listen carefully to the start of this clip where he says, I'm looking, basically says, I'm looking you straight in the eye and I'm telling you the truth, how we're going to balance the budget. Can you play it again there? I am looking straight at Canadians and being honest the way I always have. We said we are committed to balanced budgets and we are. We will balance that budget in 2019. Okay, thank you, Dwayne. Yeah, that's uh, Trudeau in the uh, last election back in 2015. Do you think, Chris, that maybe people just don't care anymore about, about balanced budgets? Unfortunately, uh, in my own experience uh, working in Ottawa, um, usually parties will pull on this stuff. They'll get together focus groups and they will ask people of their target demographic, depending on what that is, you know, older women, women, younger men, whatever it is, and ask them what their priorities are. And if they're getting the signals that spend away, I don't care, um, I'll, maybe I'll be passed on before the bill comes due, who knows what the reasoning is, maybe they're planning on moving to Florida, who knows. Um, if they're getting the signal that they don't care about rampant, horrific overspending, they'll just rack it up, and they must be getting that signal. We have no yeah. idea where else they could be getting this message from. No, nobody seems to be, I don't know, raising much of an alarm about these uh, these deficits or the fact that Trudeau just, like you said four years ago, I'm looking you straight in the eye and telling you the truth. I'm going to balance the budget in 2019. Not even close. Nobody seems to really care that much. Let me ask you about the uh, the Federal Conservative Party, because I'm not I'm not sure, Chris, that they're that much better. I mean, have a listen to this clip. This is Andrew Scheer uh, from a couple of years ago saying that he would balance the budget within two years. Have a listen. A lot of people think that a two-year target for a balanced budget is too aggressive, that it can't be done. I reject that. I think it's very important to have an ambitious timeline to return this country back to balanced budgets. Okay, so he said there he'd balance the budget in two years, but he's even reneged on that. He's saying like, oh, I, I reject that you can't do it. Well, now he's saying he, he, now he is saying you can't do it. He says he'd balance the budget within five years right. instead. I mean, does anybody believe any of this stuff about balancing the budget by either party? We hope that some of them can be believed. Uh, we frankly believed Trudeau when he promised to do it by 2019, and it's something we took his word on. Like you said, he looked people straight in the eye. It's one of the reasons why we have a mascot named Fibber. Um, he's this happy little mascot with a long nose, and if a politician just blatantly, blatantly breaks his promise or her promise, um, we unleash him, and he follows him or her around at major campaign events, and we've already done that with Trudeau. We've done that previously with provincial leaders. And when it comes to Mr. Scheer, uh, well, we hope he can get it done as soon as possible. A lot of folks and pundits are now saying, well, if Trudeau is going to leave behind this kind of a deficit, it'll take a reasonable amount of time to get it back to balance, but we'd keep the foot on the gas. We'd say, balance it as soon as humanly possible. You know, you have to make it a priority. Previous federal liberal governments have made slaying the deficit a priority, and Prime Minister yeah. Paul Martin did so when he was finance minister. And remember, that's back when Preston Manning was leader of the opposition, and they were raising issues like the deficit and the debt every single day in question period. We need to make this a cultural thing again, folks, because one day that bill will come due. For those of us who remember the early 1980s, um, those interest rates can suddenly go up on you, yeah. And then you're in deep, deep trouble. Okay, let me ask you about that, because some people might be saying, well, I don't really care what the deficit is or the debt is. It's just a number on a page or on a computer screen. Like, who cares? I mean, people are struggling to get by as it is. So, yeah, if you're going to cut my cell phone bill by 25%, great. If you're going to give me $2,000 cash in my claw so I can take my family camping, sure, I'll take the money. 
sure. Why, why should people be worried about the debt or deficit? Because the bill will always come due, and it's only us that's going to pay it. There is no magical politician watering fountain that they will go to to get money. They will take it out of our hides, and we will have to pay it. Now, we're completely in support of tax reduction. We think that is the best way to help people make ends meet. We know but that costs money. That costs money, too, though. Well, it depends, right? Because if you reduce taxes and you improve people's wealth and you allow for more businesses to hire more people, that improves the economy. So that in the end, probably won't have that much of a cost. But handing out corporate welfare to things like oil companies or Loblaws or Bombardier and you name it, and creating a department of camping, I mean, really, that's just going to cost more money. And the way that they announced it is just ridiculous. They're using this shield of saying that it's, oh, it's to help low-income kids go camping. Who doesn't love to help low-income kids go camping? That's awesome. Charities do a great job of that. Who stinks at that? Government. Government would mess that up. They'd wind up spending more money and sending very few people out to camp. Okay, here's what I want to do, Chris. I'll jump in there, take a break, come back and talk more with my guest, Chris Sims. And let's open the phone line. So I'm really interested to hear what people think about these spending promises we're seeing on the campaign trail right now. The Liberal platform got released yesterday. The amount of spending in there is just incredible. $57 billion spending plan over four years. The deficit set to skyrocket here next year to $27.4 billion, which is one year of deficit. This is the year Trudeau said he would balance the budget. That uh, promise has been absolutely shredded. There doesn't seem to be any uh, urgency to balance the budget here by this party. And by the Conservative Party, I'm not convinced they would balance the budget either. I am looking straight at Canadians and being honest the way I always have. We said we are committed to balanced budgets, and we are. We will balance that budget in 2019. (laughs) Oh, man. I love that clip. You know, it's just sort of so clear. Like, the way he laid it out there is Justin Trudeau uh, four years ago in in the federal election campaign. I'm looking you straight in the eye. And I'm being honest like I always am. We're going to balance the budget in 2019. He just, we almost did it. He only missed it by $27 billion. Looking you straight in the eye. 604-280-9898 is the number to call. Star 9898 on your cell. Chris Sims is my guest. Let's go to Alan Surrey. Hi. Okay. Don't get upset, but I can cut $13 billion from the budget tomorrow. You don't give Quebec equalization payments of $13 billion for an economy that doesn't contribute too much to Canada. Two, they got the lowest university fees. They got subsidized daycare, which all the other provinces can't afford because the West gives them the money. Now add in this equalization to Atlantic Canada. I'm cutting that deficit like crazy, okay, and thank, nobody thank wants to talk about it. Thank you for the call, Al. Uh, well, you just talked about it. Let's see, let's see what Chris Sims thinks about that. It's a major issue, and it's definitely yeah. something that needs to be looked at. We need to seriously take a look at our equalization formula. I know that there is a lot of movement there, especially in Alberta and parts of Saskatchewan, where they were saying, you know what, if you keep blockading our pipelines, uh, how about no more equalization? Because where do you think a lot of these tax dollars come from? Um, You know, we did numbers based on the parliamentary budget officer's own estimates. 
And for the last 10 years or so, we're losing out on about $13 billion just in federal tax revenue because we can't get our oil out to market because we don't have pipelines. So that's a huge, huge cost. So right now there are some movements uh, trying to tie equalization to things like pipelines. Let's go to Jim in Surrey. Hi. Hi, Mike. Um, You know, I'm a kind of a survivor of the 8082 crash there, Mm -hmm. and it was decimating. Believe it. I I know lots of people. I know lots of people that lost their houses. I work right now with guys at work that have $800,000 mortgages, and I tell them, man, are you crazy? Do you know what your government is doing right now? If if we even got one-tenth of what happened in 8082, you'd be losing your house. You would. Okay, thanks for the call. Well, I remember interest rates were quite high. I mean, you made that point earlier, Chris Sims. Yes, I did. And it's something, if, if folks don't remember it, I had a strange, very early memory as a child, so I remember how it affected my neighbors and folks in the small resource town I lived in. Ask your parents. Ask yeah. them what the, in, the interest rate was like. There was an old line, I remember, that used to say, hey, after a couple of years, I owned the doorknob on your house. That's how high interest rates were. And people lost their homes. They lost their vehicles. It was brutal. You don't want to have that go up on you. And if we index ourselves this deeply into debt with these meaningless deficits, we're in trouble. And we need to stress, keep in mind, they're running these deficits blatantly while Canadian economy is doing okay. And the American economy is on fire. Just imagine if this were in reverse. Just imagine if we were in a recession right now, like what happened in 2008. What would they be spending then? Yeah, right. Terry in New West, hi. Yeah, um, Trudeau's got some weird ideas. I don't know if he makes sense um, all the time. Um, Money spent on giving people to go camping is kind of weird. I don't know about that. Shouldn't that money, if we have it available, should be spent on more priorities that are important such as education and health care for people as they age okay th- thank you for the call well chris you mentioned that the, the camping program that's getting a lot of attention uh, for trudeau it's for underprivileged kids right i mean that's a means tested program so it's not like if you're a rich person or a middle class person you're going to get two thousand bucks to go camping it it's is. if you're a poor a poor person poor family yes but keep in mind um i don't like to use this term but just think of how really nanny statist that really is imagine if you're a family that's very low income you're struggling to make ends meet you're living in toronto or hamilton two thousand bucks That could go a long way into your rent or fixing up the car so you can get into work on time. Imagine the government coming through saying, hey, here's two grand, but uh, 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 you need to go camping in a national park. Hi. Like, (laughs) whoa. (laughs) Let's go to Michelle in Maple Ridge. Hi, Michelle. Hi. Hi. Uh, Your guest just totally nailed what I was going to say. As far as government spending, I support it if it's going for health care, education, like things like that. But all of the other stuff, just give me my money back and let me spend it the way I want. And um, like things like the child care, why not just give families more money so they can decide if they want to spend it putting their child in child care or they want to spend the money allowing yeah. one parent to stay home? Like they want to control how all the money is spent when just give us our money and we'll spend it the way we want. Okay. Okay. Thank you for the call. Well, I mean, you're kind of... That's kind of a frequent talking point by Andrew Shear as well. He wants to make life more affordable and leave more money in your pocket. But like I said, I'm, I'm not too convinced that he would balance the budget either. I mean, the conservatives have got a terrible record in running up deficits themselves. Let's squeeze in one more. David in South Surrey. Hi. 
drunken sailor syndrome, Michael. Two generations from now, when the interest goes up, it's just going to be staggering debt. I just can't believe what they've done. Yeah, no, the the run-up to this election, too, but thanks for the call, by the way, has been extraordinary, the amount of spending that we've seen in the run-up to this election, yep. and now we're seeing billions more. Chris, real quick. Very quickly, yeah. Yep. I would recommend anybody read up on David Aiken, who uh, tallied all the spending leading up to yep. the election. And very quickly, if you want an example of how bad it can get, look at what's happening in Ontario right now. They ran out the clock on deficits, and now they're having to make some okay. reductions, and people are screaming blue murder. Imagine Th- that on a federal scale. Thanks for coming on. You're welcome. Chris Sims, Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Let's talk about the Beyond Meat Burger. Man, I tell you, this is popular. A lot more restaurants trying to introduce new products for consumers with this Beyond Meat Veggie Burger. The latest is Mickey D's, really, McDonald's. The biggest fast food franchise in the world. They have got a Beyond Meat Burger now. They call it the PLT. So not a BLT like bacon, lettuce, and tomato. This is the PLT, plant lettuce and tomato. They're rolling that out in some locations in Ontario today. So this is kind of a test for McDonald's to see if people like this veggie burger, this Beyond Meat burger at McDonald's. Remember Tim Hortons tried one? It didn't really work out for them. But now Beyond Meats partnered up with McDonald's, the biggest chain out there. Let's talk about this now with my guest, Will Coggan. He's the director of research at the Center for Consumer Freedom. They've done a lot of research on Beyond Meat and uh, other meat alternative products. I'm very pleased to welcome him. Hi, Will. Hey, Mike. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for coming on. Would Would you try one of these McDonald burgers yourself? Oh, I definitely would. You know, I've, I've tried the Beyond Meat products before. You know that they have at the local grocery stores here. You know, we're based in in Washington D.C. Um, you know, they're, they're interesting. Uh, I, I didn't like it by, per se, <laughs> but you know, what's certainly this sort of we call them veggie burgers 2.0. You know, you have the stuff that's been on the market for 20 years. That you know the frozen food aisle, you know, very processed, not very good. Tastes like cardboard. You know, this stuff definitely tastes a little bit different. It's got a, a better mouthfeel to it for me, uh, yeah. but the the smell and taste were definitely off compared to real meat. Okay, I haven't tried one of these Beyond Meat burgers yet myself, but as I understand it, Will, one of the appealing parts of it is they're kind of juicy, right? Like they're not kind of dried out like you might get with a veggie burger. This one's actually got some real juice in there that makes it sort of I don't know, sort of seems like meat. More like meat, do you think? Yeah, it, it definitely uh, had had some good moisture. The one yeah. I tried, but yeah. the, uh, the there's another product that Burger King has uh, that's called uh, Impossible Burger, and that's supposed to have you know a juice that kind of quote bleeds like a real burger would. Yeah, yeah, it bleeds like real meat. But is what is this stuff like? These Beyond Meat burgers that McDonald's rolling out? How does that compare to actual meat, like real meat? Like, are these Beyond Meat burgers healthier for you? Well, no, and we're seeing a lot more coverage of this issue just coming out. So certainly, I think consumers are going to be curious. You know, they have been curious, saying, "Oh, well, you know, what's this new this new line of veggie burger products? Let me let me give it a try." Right. Um, but but a lot of people actually don't know what's in them. You know, certainly if you're buying any of these at a restaurant, you're not going to get an ingredient list with it, the nutrition label. And so a lot of people don't know that. You know, they, they, it's called plant-based burgers. And so a lot of people would assume, okay, plant-based that sounds healthier for me. Uh, you know, the word plant is you know very good. It sounds like vegetables. But it's really not. 
it's not any healthier for you than real meat, uh, like a lot of people assume it is. They, they oftentimes have the same amount of calories as real beef, and they actually have much higher sodium, generally speaking. Okay, so what's in there? What are, what are some of the ingredients so, so, in, a beyond, in a Beyond Meat uh, patty? Sure. Well, as you can imagine, you know, they, they engineer this stuff to, to try to mimic as closely as they can real meat. And yeah. uh, to, put it, to put it bluntly, you know, plant-based burgers do not grow in a vine. You know, they, they, these are manufactured in laboratories and in factories. And so you know, what, what happens is they, they add a lot of processed ingredients to kind of give it that the same kind of texture and taste and you know, try to mimic real meat. So if you look on the ingredients labels, depending on the product, you know, I think Beyond Meat has, uh, I believe, over 20 ingredients in it. And other products that are out there, you might find that the supermarket would have over 40 in them. So the ingredients like methyl cellulose, uh, other chemical ingredients, preservatives uh, that have very long names uh, or, you know, sort of chemicals to help uh, with the taste uh, and the mouthfeel of the products that, that have very, very long names uh, that you'd be a chemist out to really know the formula for. So the highly processed or ultra-processed foods, um, and so that, that's how they make them taste like, you know, as close as they can, real meat. Okay, so they're highly processed foods, but they're obviously marketed as maybe better for you than, than meat or maybe people think they're healthier. I mean, when I took a look at some of the breakdown of the comparison between, say, like a Beyond Burger patty and, let's say, a lean ground beef patty, I don't know. I mean, the calories are about the same. There's saturated fat in a Beyond Burger, too, isn't there? Yeah, there certainly is. Yeah. You know, these, these plant-based burgers, they might use, let's say, coconut oil uh, to help increase some of the flavoring there, and that has some saturated fat in it. So, uh, And certainly they, they have sodium to help preserve the products and to give it a little bit better taste as well. Uh, so certainly more sodium than you'd find in, in just natural beef. Um, so, so again, it's, you know, they've come up and they've really experimented over the years with trying to develop a formulation that's, that's closely, uh, as close to real meat as they can, they can come up with. But the, the problem is, at the end of the day, they can't get past the fact that, you know, real meat, you know, ground beef is going to have one ingredient, beef, right? And maybe add some salt and pepper to it for seasoning. Uh, but this stuff's going to have dozens of ingredients in it. Um, what's interesting, you know, certainly you mentioned Tim Hortons a moment ago. Yeah. So Tim Hortons has been doing a, a six-month or so test in Canada of these Beyond Meat products. And so they just recently rolled that back. They, you know, they've been testing them out and across Canada, and now they've, they've reduced their offerings of Beyond Meat to just Ontario and um, out your way in British Columbia. So it, that indicates that, you know, people may be curious and try this stuff, but it may just be kind of a short-term fad. You know, at, at the mm -hmm. end of the day, you know, if you add seasoning, ketchup, cheese, and a bun to something, you can make cardboard taste good um, just by <laughs> having, you know, having other stuff that, that adds more taste to it and might maybe mask the, the uh, taste one way or the other of these steak meat products. I think there's more stories coming out from nutritionists and dietitians saying, you know, this, this so-called plant-based stuff is really, it's not any healthier for you. Uh, it's about the same, nutritionally speaking. And so people might just say, well, you know what, it's cool, but I'll have the real thing. Thank you. Okay, but you know what, it's interesting, like the, the, the Tim Hortons precedent there was an interesting one where it obviously didn't catch on with Tim Hortons customers, but man, that did not discourage McDonald's from getting on board the Beyond Meat train here. I mean, that's got to be the home run for Beyond Meat. Are you kidding me to do a deal with McDonald's? I mean, they got to be thrilled over there. Well, absolutely. I mean, they, they are the, you know, McDonald's is the number one burger brand in the world. So yeah. certainly it's, it's, it's big news. Uh, and again, I think you'll see a lot of people try the product in the short term. Uh, I, you know, if it comes to, to my area, I'll certainly try it just to see what it's like. Uh, but again, it, it's, is it going to last? We'll see. Uh, you know, I think, again, Tim Hortons got a lot of press. I think they were the, the first um, you know, restaurant in, in Canada to, to really roll it out widely. And you know, 
again, after some months, they said it seems certainly like they they saw consumer interest trail off in most areas of Canada. So you know, McDonald's is just doing it in Ontario. Uh, certainly, there may be some interest there, but we'll see. Okay, if, if it catches on in Ontario, you can bet McDonald's will be rolling it out, out elsewhere. Uh, you're with the Center for Consumer Freedom. What do you guys do over there? Well, are you guys are you guys funded by the beef industry? We're funded by the food industry in general, and we, that does include people in the meat industry. Um, yes. Okay. So you know, our general thing over the years has been to sort of consumer education, uh, as well as on the you know, here in the U.S. We've had some some various activist groups and politicians who want to run a nanny state about what people can eat. Um, and so we've opposed that stuff uh, in the past as well. So you know, one part consumer education and one part advocates for, in general, consumer freedom in, in terms of what people can eat. Talking about the rollout today in Ontario of the new Beyond Meat Burger at McDonald's. This is like the big kahuna. They tried it at Tim Hortons. The Beyond Meat products there at Timmy's didn't really catch on with the consumers they kind of backed off on it but here we go with mcdonald's here offering a beyond meat burger they're starting it today in ontario there's 28 different mcdonald's locations in ontario that are offering the beyond meat burger starting today it's called the plt plant lettuce and tomato burger at mcdonald's the price for a PLT is six forty nine, six dollars and forty nine cents Canadian for a PLT. Would you eat one of those? Would you like to see McDonald's in British Columbia sell one of these things? 604-280-9898 is the number to call star ninety-eight ninety-eight on your cell. My guest Will Coggin, Center for Consumer Freedom. Six forty nine, Will, what do you think of that price point? It's not bad. No, it's not bad. Uh, what's the price point for a quarter pounder up there? I'm not sure. Maybe around. I think a quarter pounder might be a bit more expensive than that, but I'm not sure. That's interesting. What we've seen here is actually uh, with some of these these uh, fake meat burgers, they cost a little bit more typically than a real yeah. beef burger does. Maybe you know two dollars more uh, if you're going out to let's say PGI Fridays or something. Okay. Uh, so they they do tend to cost a little bit more than than a real burger would. Let's say a real beef burger. Um, but again, it's it's not to the point where it's prohibitive. You know, it's not like it's double a price. Yeah. Uh, but certainly, that would that, that will influence people's purchasing. You know, I know McDonald's certainly has a very popular dollar menu or two dollar menu. So, um, six forty nine. You know, we'll see. Again, I think you'll see a lot of interest. Certainly, because you know McDonald's is trying this stuff out, and people go, "Oh, new product." You know, what sure. is this? BLT. Oh, sounds like BLT. I'll give it a shot. So, I think they'll they'll certainly initially see a lot of interest. You know, KFC did see a lot of interest in uh, in Atlanta. They tried out this, I think at just one location, they tried out like a fake fried chicken a few weeks ago. How'd that work and out? They saw a lot of interest there. Yeah, they, they saw a lot of interest. Now, again, mm-hmm. it's, it, it's one of those things where people might try and say, yeah, you know what, I'll just have the real thing, but it's fun to try. Um, so they did a one-day thing. So it's was, it was kind of a, a special promo down in Atlanta. So it, it's hard to say, again, you know, from a from an extended uh, time frame, if this stuff will actually, uh, you know, how how successful it will be in the long yeah. run. Okay, 604-280-9898 is the number to call. Star 9898 on your cell. Hiya, Casey. Yeah. Hi, go ahead. Yeah, hello. What do you think? Hello. Now, I think it's a great idea because, let's be honest, when you're going to McDonald's or you're going to A&W or you're going to Tim Hortons, you're not really looking for a healthy alternative. What you're looking for is a non-meat alternative. 
speaking from experience, my wife is largely vegetarian. One of my sons is vegetarian. And it's not about so much the health choice in this case. It's about the non-animal choice. My son is yeah. vegetarian largely because he does, he's not a big fan of the way, you know, large proteins are harvested now. So if there's a plant option, he's going to take it. So we go to McDonald's, we go to A&W, I get a team burger, my other son gets a team burger, my wife and my other son, they get their uh, Beyond Meat burger. And you know what? They're good, but they're not healthy. They're burgers <laughs> at a fast food joint. And you, you're going to know that going in, yeah. that you're not getting a healthy option. You want a healthy option, you go get a salad. These aren't salads. But they taste good, and they're a non-animal option. And I think that's the big thing, and I think that's why this is going to be successful, because it's going to give everybody a chance to go to McDonald's. Because who doesn't like McDonald's? It's the best fries in the world, let's be honest. So okay. I think it's a great – going forward, I think it's going to be successful, largely because it's a non-meat option, not so much it's a healthy plant option. Casey, thanks for a good call. Will, are the, is the meat industry shaking in their boots here over this Beyond Meat fad? Well, I think that it's certainly on the radar of concern, and, and certainly the, yeah. if you if you listen to the rhetoric of the people running these fake meat companies, you know, I think that certainly is, is creating fear in people in the meat industry. You know, they, they just came out to an interview with the guy who runs the uh, company that has Impossible Burger. It's called Impossible Foods, and he said basically he wants to put the entire meat industry into a death spiral. Was his words, <laughs> and he wants to eliminate them by I think twenty thirty five. So wow. fifteen years from now. Yeah, so certainly the rhetoric coming out from these guys, you know, the guys who run these companies tend to be vegan, and they tend to want to get rid of, of you know, any, any, anybody raising livestock under any kind of conditions whatsoever. You know, ideologically, they're opposed to meat. Okay. Um, so, so certainly that, that, that is their goal at the end of the day. Let's go to Peter and Langley. Hey, Peter. Hey, uh, yeah, I don't eat them because of it. they're healthy. I eat them because it takes 13,000 liters of water to produce a single hamburger, and cows are some of the most uh, environmentally harmful products or livestock to raise. So it's not about health. It's about what we're doing to our planet. Will, what do you say to that? Well, the, the, I think there's, there's a lot of misconceptions there about the environmental arguments uh, regarding eating meat. And certainly this, this is actually some of the marketing material from these fake meat companies. They say, you know, we're so much better than animal agriculture. So I'll offer two, two points in rebuttal. Um, so one, you know, if you look at you know, here in the U.S., the EPA puts out a, an inventory every year of greenhouse gas emissions. And so if, if you listen to the fake meat companies or some of the, let's say, vegan activists at animal rights groups who, who uh, promote fake meat, you know, they will say that uh, animal agriculture is responsible for a huge percentage of greenhouse gas emissions. Right. But if you look at the EPA statistics here in the U.S., it's actually less than 4% of total greenhouse gas emissions are, are from animal agriculture. So the, a lot of times these people use let's, uh, how they raise livestock in other countries, you know, third world countries where it's much less efficient. But here in the U.S., and I'm, I'm sure it's true in Canada as well, um, the, you know, it's, it's just not true. We are very well, efficient at, at Okay, well, it may be, I guess, a small overall percentage of greenhouse gases, but would these Beyond Meat burgers or these other meat alternative burgers produce less greenhouse gases for the same amount of product they might but if you look at the overall reduction you know in the bigger scheme of things we're talking you know a very very small overall reduction if, if including if, if everybody went to these these plant-based diets um you know entirely so okay. i think it's it's very small uh, let's go to the overall reduction squeeze in one more call adrian but you got to go quick 
Hi. Um, Hi. I just wanted to say I'm a vegetarian and my boyfriend's a vegan, and I agreed with both of the previous callers. I was going to say it's the ethical treatment of animals and the climate. And it kind of sounds like your guest is like heavily lobbied by the meat industry to have to be saying that it's not a big effect on climate and agriculture. Okay, Adrian. Um, okay, Adrian. Thanks for the call. I hate to step on you there, but we're out of time. Um, Will, thank you. You did mention that you're par- partially funded by the meat industry. I got that right, right? Yeah, we have it. Yeah. Okay. Thanks for coming on. Yes, sir. I appreciate it. That is Will Coggin, Center for consumer freedom on the day that mcdonald's is uh, rolling out its beyond meat burger in ontario thanks a lot for your calls let's talk about the uh, recently wrapped up union of bc municipalities conference this is always an interesting gathering of mayors and councillors from across british columbia they get an opportunity to sit down with facetime with the premier his cabinet on mlas and this year i'll tell you i thought the ubcm convention overall was not a great one for the John Horgan government. I thought Horgan gave a kind of a bad speech there at his keynote on Friday, and there was also a comment that Horgan made that the liberals are now calling on him to apologize for the comment, which I'll play for you in just a moment. But first, let me introduce you to my guest, Keith Baldry, Global BC political reporter. Keith, thanks for coming in. Good to be here, Mike. The UBCM every year is an opportunity for these uh, local councillors to sit down with uh, the province. Is, is this an important event on the political calendar, calendar in BC? Oh, yeah. No, it's a major event. As you mentioned, it's every MLA, almost every mayor, a whole bunch of councillors, city managers. On one hand, it's the biggest political schmooze fest you can possibly imagine. The receptions are well attended in the evening, but there's a lot of buttonholing and uh, lobbying going on during the day. So it's important also, but one of the big traditions, of course, is the Premier's keynote address that ends the convention on Friday. For the first two year, for the first a couple of uh, conventions under NDP. I think there was a not so much a love in as it was a bit of a honeymoon there. But now that they're, they're easing into their third year, I think uh, there was evidence on display at the UBCM that the relationship between the NDP government and some communities, particularly in the interior and the north, is becoming a little frayed around the edges because of what's happening in the forest industry. Okay, the forest industry downturn is a big story, and we saw this incredible protest mm-hmm. by displaced forest workers. You had those logging trucks just come rolling into downtown Vancouver, almost 300 logging trucks, 14 kilometer long line of trucks. And I thought that was an amazing demonstration. And and they got a lot of bang for their buck there because they went right to the convention center where you got the premier, his cabinet, all the MLAs, every mayor and councillor all gathered in one spot perfect spot for a protest they got a lot of attention it was a theatrical and effective uh, protest i'm sure some motorists didn't like it who were tied up in traffic as a result but they got their message across and again i mean the 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 NDP government's in a tough spot here because there's no easy fix to this thing people are saying we got to got to reduce uh, stumpage rates but doug donaldson the forest minister makes the counter argument with some validity i think that if you start messing with stumpage you just trigger and even you escalate the ongoing war on softwood with the u.s uh, lumber council so uh, again no easy fix but uh, the, nevertheless, these communities are struggling. And that's why I think they were looking for more from the NDP and particularly the Premier when he gave his speech. And he made it clear up front he's not there to dispense goodies. That has been a bit of a tradition from, from various Premiers over the years. UBCM uses a platform to announce so-called goodies. Oregon went out of his way to say, sorry, uh, the, the kitty's dry right now. Yeah, we just saw Finance Minister Carol James the other day as well uh, bring in a ban on uh, 
discretionary spending mm-hmm. at, in the ministry level looking to save 300, I believe it's 300 million right, right. bucks they're looking to save. So this is a government with a, a balanced budget, but it's balanced on a razor edge. They do not want to slip into deficit no. here. No, and it's interesting. Uh, the forestry revenue line item is more than a billion dollars this year, and it's hard to see how they're going to collect a billion dollars from an industry that's closing 25 mills permanently wow. or temporarily. So those revenues are going to plummet. So I, one reason why I think Carol James is taking this first step, and I think there'll be more of belt tightening, and that means discretionary spending such as travel and outside consultants is, is now off the table. But look for more belt tightening to occur because they're in a bit of a fiscal problem, and it compounds the situation for all these communities around BC because uh, they're dependent on that number one industry that's struggling right now and not a lot of help coming from the government. But again, there's not a lot of avenues of help, I think, existing for the government. To, to be fair to the government, there's a lot of things that are beyond their control that yes. has contributed to this crisis. I mean, there's been the wildfires that burns up a lot of high-value timber. There's the beetle kill wood mm-hmm. from climate change. Uh, there's the fight with the Americans. Like, if they cut the stumpage rate, which is the amount of money the government charges to cut down trees on, on Crown land, if if they do that, like the liberals say they should... Doesn't that invite a, a, another big trade war well, with the Americans? Yeah, there's already an ongoing tr- a trade war, which uh, you see forest companies paying in excess of 20% in terms of tariffs. Uh, that would trigger an argument in the states that if you artificially reduce stumpage, that that works out a to subsidy. a de facto subsidy. And yeah. that's the, the heart of the Americans' argument because so much of our timber is on public land, unlike down there where it's on private land. They're arguing just by it, its existence, the crown is subsidizing the companies already. So a, a cut in stumpage would would further that argument. Now, there is an argument to be made that, no, it's not a subsidy, but just try getting that past the U.S. Lumber Council. There's also been a lot of automation in the industry where a lot Mm -hmm. of mills have been automated. They bring in robots and that kind of stuff, and they're able to process the same amount of wood with fewer workers. So that's just progress that the government's out of the control of the government's hand. But let me ask you about this, because uh, Horgan said something at this convention, and I want to play this, this clip. And the government did roll out a $69 million aid package mm-hmm. for these displaced workers. We've had thousands of forest workers out of, out of their jobs. $69 million bucks. They did not mention that $25 million of that money came from another program that was designed to help rural communities called mm-hmm. the Rural Dividend Fund. Very popular program for these small towns where you could apply for grants and that kind of thing for local projects. A lot of these mayors and councillors found out about it because they got these form letters from the government saying, oh, by the way, we've raided this fund now, mm-hmm. so we're not going to pay for your project. So a lot of mayors and councillors were very angry that this this program had been shut down, $25 million. They actually passed a resolution calling it for the, the program to be restored. Horgan was asked about this, and he said, well, we're going to res- we'll restore it later. Like right, mm-hmm. right now, we got a crisis. We need the money. We'll restore it later. And then he had this line, Keith, that I want to play for you here now, Dwayne, if you've got that clip. Here is Premier John Horgan talking about mayors complaining about this program getting shut down. I'm not at all concerned that people would prefer to have everything right now. Uh, when I was a kid, I always wanted everything right now, too, and I ended up turning out okay, even though I didn't get everything I wanted at the time I wanted it. When I was a kid, I wanted everything right now. I couldn't believe he said that because yeah. it's like you're comparing these small forest-dependent communities that are in, in, on their knees 
And he's complaining them to whining yeah. kids. Like, yeah. what was that? Yeah, it was tone deaf uh, for sure at a, at a minimum. Uh, uncharacteristic of Horgan since he became premier to talk like that. I was actually taken aback when he said that because he came across as sort of cold-hearted or hard-hearted. Like he doesn't un- care. Unsympathetic to these small towns' concerns. And they are really struggling. When, you, when you're the only game in town in terms of a mill, when you close, so do the local cafes and some of the local businesses. So this is having a big impact in the interior. And I, I think talking like that uh, does not serve his government very well. And it further, I think, will exacerbate or widen the rural-urban divide that we saw come out of the last election, where the NDP doesn't have a lot of representation outside of Metro Vancouver and Vancouver Island, and the Liberals, that's where the Liberal strength is. So you've got this disconnect, I think, on display between a provincial government that owes its life to the suburbs of, of Metro Vancouver and not the north or the interior. Okay, the Liberals are calling in Horgan to apologize for that comment. I'm not sure if he will. I agree with you. I think it was a tone-deaf comment, and... I I guess an uncharacteristic Mm -hmm. miscue by Horgan. He's a pretty smart politician. He doesn't really mess up a whole lot, but I thought he messed up there. I I think he did mess up. I think he probably privately acknowledges that he shouldn't be talking that way. I don't think he'll apologize. I think he just wants to move on. But uh, I don't think this this divide between the rural and urban parts of BC is going to disappear anytime soon. Today, talking to my guest, Keith Baldry, Legislative Bureau Chief for Global TV. We're talking about the uh, John Horgan government here in the aftermath of that big logging protests that we saw in Vancouver last week. You had almost 300 logging trucks uh, cramming up downtown. They went straight to the convention center to confront all the politicians there. Thousands of people out of work here, Keith, in the logging industry. It's pretty brutal. Yeah, several thousand. 25 uh, mills in the last count. There's a running count the government keeps. 25 mills, either permanently or, or temporary curtailments. Uh, or shutdowns, uh, several thousand uh, estimates are upwards of uh, more than 5,000 workers affected by this in 22 communities around BC. So this is, uh, this is one of the biggest economic hits BC, a uh, region of BC has, has suffered, I think, in quite some time. It, this is, you mentioned the rural urban divide in the province, which I think was kind of on full display here with that protest that we mm-hmm. saw in Vancouver. And it's another reason why I think this, this comment from Horgan, where he had this tone deaf comment about, well, with, with these logging communities asking for help, and he said, "Well, I when I was a kid, I wanted everything too." Yeah, I couldn't believe he, he said that. Yeah. But is that kind of like a lot of these communities are in the north and interior of BC, where the NDP don't have a lot of MLAs? It's mostly no. liberal ridings. N- not a lot of voices at the at the table in terms of the, uh, both the caucus or the cabinet uh, from outside of Metro Vancouver or uh, Vancouver Island, and I think that that can be a factor in in a government's uh, decision making. But keep in mind. One of the mills that shut down was in Surrey, and Surrey right. is the battleground here. Another one was in uh, in the Maple Ridge area. So these are key ridings as well that the NDP hope to uh, hold in the next election. And they have to be careful that what's going on around the province doesn't start to seep into some of the bigger forestry operations in Metro. But we also talked earlier about the fact that it's a tough one for the government because they're limited in what they can do. Uh, they're afraid of getting into a trade war with the Americans if they subsidize the industry. And even if they just wanted to do like increased employment assistance for displaced workers or something, this is a government doesn't have a lot of money. Doesn't have a lot of money. It's have a shrinking amount of money. And we just talked before the break about Carol James uh, having to have those belt tightening uh, measures. But you're right. There's not a lot of uh, avenues for the government to step in here. Any sign of anything uh, that translates into a subsidy for the forest companies is going to be met with uh, fierce opposition from the American lumber industry. The other thing the premier did mention in his speech 
Uh, he did talk about the need for value added. The days of milling two by fours are, are drawing to a close, and I think there's a lot of forestry analysts who agree with that. The old-fashioned sawmill, um, the, the supply is not there anymore because of the, the post-pine mountain beetle uh, kill. And uh, so mills have to change their operations. You talked about more robotics in, in yeah. mills. I mean, yeah. you look at Canfor, Canfor's operations, biggest forest company in the world. Their operations in Sweden are sort of these modern mills that have fewer people employed there, but they yeah. make more specialty products and value added products. But the pr- trouble with that is that's a long time to make that switch for some of these mills, and they don't necessarily have the, the financial uh, backing to endure what could be three or okay. four years of losses. 604-280-9898 is the number to call. Star 9898 on your cell. Ron and Poco, hi. How are you doing, Mike? Good, good. What do you want to uh, say? A buddy of mine who's been logging and he's had, like, wood companies, he says the shortage of wood is BS. He says the amount of complete trees that are being exported. Raw logs. Yeah, whole logs. He said there are ships being loaded with bare logs that are going out of the country daily. Okay, let me get Keith's take, let me get Keith's take on it. That's something we've been talking about for twenty years. Here. Well, <laughs> John Horton and NDP called for an end of uh, the export of raw logs. So that it is true the export of it continues. There's some debate whether there's more now or whether there's less, and it also depends what region I think you're talking about. Keep in mind, a lot of forestry jobs are tied to the felling of trees. I mean, somebody gets paid to chop those logs down. Uh, the argument is should they be then uh, tied to have to be processed at a local mill? That's been an age-old argument. The Liberals ended that practice that uh, tying the logs automatically to the local mill operation. Perhaps that is restored, but uh, there's more to the problem than just the export of raw logs. Let me get your take on an issue we talked about a lot today on the show today, Keith, and that's vaping Mm. and the rise of teen vaping in particular, a 74% increase in vaping by Canadian teenagers in just one year. We saw an emergency order by the Washington Mm -hmm. state governor on Friday to ban flavored vape products. Here's Liberal MLA Todd Stone, who has uh, called for the same thing here in British Columbia. Sounds like Adrian Dixon and the NDP government uh, are now awake to the issue. Um, I I guess my my question at this point is there sounds, you know, he mentioned a lot of potential actions there, um, you know, when? When are we actually yeah. going to see the actions uh, begin to be put in place? I, I introduced my private member's bill last April. Uh, by the time we're back in session in, uh, next week, it will be six months, six months of, uh, of no action. Okay, I think good issue for the Liberals. What are the NDP going to do here? Yeah, well, good good issue for Todd Stone. I mean, he seized upon this, and yeah. I think he's going to. This will probably be dominate the first question period next week when the House resumes. So good for him for raising this. He's pushing Adrian Dix hard on this. Uh, I heard Dix on with you. I've talked to Dix about this before. He clearly recognizes this is a, a, a pressing problem that's growing in urgency. He wants to do something. I don't think he's quite figured out what he wants yet. He's waiting for the Feds to wait in on on the uh, the flavored nicotine. Not a good time for the be waiting no. on the Feds. There's an election it really is the government's in suspended animation so we're going to wait till probably november to get any action from the feds no matter who wins that election uh so it's a it's a, a pressing problem a great urgency and i think it's a a rising health care problem that's why adrian dix i think acknowledges he's got to do something so look for stone to continue to push this squeeze in one more call scott and maple ridge hi hi yeah you know i i really believe and more and more by the day, that the NDP are going to suffer big time for the changes at ICBC. 
You know, the unions out there now with these ads comparing it to a U.S. health care system, as if it wasn't that way already. They're already hard-assed about everything and, and give people a bad time. That As the 12-month 12, 12 cycle goes through and all these kids are renewing, especially the kids out in the suburbs who still have to drive. I'm not talking about downtown Vancouver where they're all taking the SkyTrain. I'm talking about okay. the suburbs. Yep. Scott, That's thanks a lot. I'm real problem. Thank you. I'm hearing a lot of people, kids getting ICBC premiums well, guess, for 5000 bucks, 6000 bucks. Guess who's paying that? It's their parents. Yeah. <laughs> and this is the problem the NDP has. They've opened up a gigantic political can of worms here. Yeah. Kids are paying four or $5,000 in insurance. Well, just like tuition, it's not them paying it. It's their parents. And those are the people who vote more than their kids do. And that's why the NDP, this is a ticking time bomb for them. Thanks for coming in. All right. Keith Baldry, Legislative Bureau Chief for Global News.